While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. some graffiti i guess i don't know i don't think that's very interesting what what was the graffiti it's just listen like i'm a white guy from ohio (laughs) go on i don't know i don't know anything about like like getting tagged by graffitos or like (laughs) or like gang signs or anything so i don't i can't tell you what a graffiti means I think the first mistake is you're calling it a graffiti. I it's it was just those big loopy squigglies, you yeah, know. Do you and sometimes the and then sometimes they have the the year after them. Have you have you <laughs> have we talked about this that I don't know who I was saying this to. I never can read graffiti. Like I don't know if that's the point or if but it if it is the, the point, point, right? I can like never it's a, read it. It's like the hobo code. Like the people who know how to read it can read it, but it's not. Oh. It's not for us because <laughs> we're not graffitos. No, we're not graf- graffitos. I can artists. get into Banksy. Like he's he's a graffito I can get behind. Well, because he's like doing a mural, right? I like I like that. Plan graffiti is just called a mural. <laughs> I saw people doing a planned graffiti the other day. <laughs> it was a bunch of squares. It was like a checkerboard pattern on the oh, side I of the I thought you garage. were going to say it was a bunch of squares no. doing graffiti. They were just... Well, clearly, because it was a planned graffiti. <laughs> Only squares do planned graffiti. <laughs> so, yeah, like they... I don't know. There, there's... I've, I feel like once you get one graffiti, it is sort of a sign to other graffitos that it that your wall is okay to be graffitied on. So we got one a few weeks ago and then we got another really big one right by our door. Oh. Um like on Friday, Thursday or Friday. And they're just they're just like multiplying. So I went to the Home Depot and I and I took a little bit of wall I don't know. This Did you long, cut off a piece story. of your wall? No, but the the exterior wall is this weird like pebble finish stuff. Oh yeah. And there was a bucket with a little bit of it left in the bottom of it okay. in our apartment building's shared basement. So I wiped some of it on a piece of paper. <laughs> I went to Home Depot. <laughs> One I of these, some, please. I matched some paint to it. Uh-huh. And then I paint it over it. And it looks pretty good. Good job. I just don't, I don't, what I'm worried about is that it will become some kind of war where I'm constantly trying to one up the people who are spray painting the house. So they see me like painting over it. And then they decide <laughs> that they're just, they're just going to go all out on my wall and they're going to graffiti it all up. And well, I'm maybe, be covered it, maybe, in graffiti. oh, how can you escalate it so that they do a planned graffiti? How can you escalate it so that they just mural your wall? That's an interesting question. Do you think that if I drew 
the outlines of a picture that they would color it in. Later. I hope so. <laughs> Can you put would... numbers in and then like a legend for what colors go? <laughs> that would be good. That would be like a collaborative. It would become a community oh art project. God, it's called creative placemaking, Andrew. I don't know if you. That's like a thing. What? Pinterest did you read that off? No, it's <laughs> like their foundations give people money for creative placemaking. Oh, okay. Especially if it crosses cultural borders and you are not a graffito and you're interfacing with I'm not. graffitos. I don't even know if a graffito is I don't think it's a thing. <laughs> Uh, but I know what is a thing, and that is overdue a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I hope you knew our names before, because otherwise it's just two guys talking about graffiti, which is and another podcast up, that we've been meaning to start. Making up words about <laughs> people who graffiti. Uh, so we read books, <clears throat> ostensibly books we've either heard of before and haven't read, or books that have been recommended to us by listeners like you. More on that later. <laughs> Dipping in some reading rainbow territory here. Yeah, I don't know what's right. going on. <laughs> Craig, what book did you read this week? I read The Passage by Justin Cronin. Is this about hallways? No, though I think there are some hallways in the book. Okay, what is it about? It is about a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> it's a really big book. Like, what's the one sentence? Like some boil down these 700, were 700 pages... By Justin Cronin. I don't know if we said ooh, the author's name. Ooh, there's a yeah, Justin Cronin. There's a quote in the book actually that once all the stuff we'll get into this, but once all the stuff that happens in the book kind of goes down and and the book kicks into high gear, one of the chapters <laughs> opens with "It happened fast. Thirty-two minutes for one world to die, another to be born." Huh? 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 So it's interesting. So the slightly longer short of it is that the government was trying to cure all the diseases and they inadvertently created vampires. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, society, as we know it, collapsed. And then a hundred years later, people are picking up the pieces. Okay. Yeah. From that 32 minutes quote, I figured it was either an apocalyptic event or it was a really good tv show finale um yeah because those extra 10 minutes right because it's finale usually they're 22 (laughs) yeah it could have been what if what if the end of seinfeld had just ended everything people like it's up pack it on we're done it would have had to be way better than it was (laughs) to end anything i think it barely ended seinfeld (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Seinfeld's like a vampire. It came back. It came back on curb. <laughs> so it's about vampires. On a scale from one to ten, how sexy are these vampires? They are negative four sexy. They are not sexy at all. These vampires. I don't, I don't understand. If I'm if I'm not aroused when I'm reading about vampires, then what even is the point? They're supposed to be scary. These vampires are kinda of scary. So going back to Dracula then, like what are the rules that govern these vampires? Like what are they I don't know. Do they bite each other? Do they suck blood? They don't bite are each they... other. That'd be a waste of time. I'm s- well, okay. <laughs> um I read a pretty good comparison that they they are not unlike Morlocks from H. G. Wells Time Machine. They are vulnerable to light 
though they do emit some sort of kind of phosphorescent glow. They are hairless. Uh, they kind of move on all fours. They can walk around, but they don't generally do that. Um, their hands get all claw-like, and they, they grow like extra pointy teeth. The word that Justin Cronin uses is sword-like. Uh, they can't talk or anything. They're kind of like animals, um, and they're super powerful and can like jump around, and they're very fast. This, this is the like fast-moving zombie kind of thing. And I assume they can't be communicated with or reasoned with or anything. Not all of them. Okay, maybe it would be maybe it would be good to like take a step back. Yeah, where do you want to step back to? Do you want to step back? Let's step back to the beginning. Let's go back to the or Justin Cronin if you have interesting things to say about him. Well, he has written four novels. Two of them are about vampires. What are the other two about? Uh, one of them is about like a fishing. chilling so he came to writing a little later in life he graduated from the Iowa writers workshop and he published two novels called Marion O'Neill and the summer guest and I believe he won the Hemingway award Hemingway foundation award for Marion O'Neill and both of them are kind of sleepier domestic novels for lack of a better word okay Uh, there's a great quote in an interview about uh, the about Justin Cronin's whole process because this was kind of regarded these books were kind of regarded as him selling out a little bit because uh, he went were from these, writing were these pre or post the passage these were post these were pre the passage excuse me okay um, and then he came up with the idea as the legend goes for the passage by <laughs> talking to his nine year old daughter who said that he should write a book about a girl that saves the world. And so then he was hanging out with his daughter for a summer and he basically like spitballed the plot with her and then created the book. That's the that's the legend anyway. Okay. Um but this uh Colson Whitehead, who's another um literary minded author who ended up writing um like a a post apocalyptic story, he was asked in this article about Cronin, he said, um he he replied, <laughs> that's what it, this New York Times writer said, uh, he replied politely that he'd rather shoot himself in the face than have another discussion about the difference between one category of literature and another. <laughs> Talking about literary fiction versus quote unquote genre fiction. Okay. Um, I mean, we've had that, we've had that conversation before. Yeah. I don't it, think either of us has threatened anything about like gun violence, but, <laughs> uh, but that idea that like pigeonholing books into certain genres and then judging them based on which genre you've you've put them into is it's like useful to an extent like it's useful if you're trying to have a conversation about the book I think but it's not useful if you're trying to make a snap judgment about how the book should be regarded before yeah. you even open it Yeah you know? and it's it's very helpful for bookstores right but sure. <laughs> beyond that, it gets it, you can you run into that problem with all sorts of genre issues. Like imagine if the home improvement books and the YA fiction were all mixed together. You wouldn't know if you were getting something about building cabinets or like your first sexual experience. Or both. I had to walk back from that comment because I thought you were talking about books based on the television show starring Tim Allen. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> 
I've read the novelization of Home Improvement. It is not that good. They did not. <laughs> Wilson is just really inconsistent with his character on the TV show. That's not how it happened in the books. Uh, so Dustin Cronin kind of, he'd settled into his life and actually was very thinking that he was just going to go on teaching, you know, fiction writing and kind of get his kids free college through the university he was working for. And then he came up with this idea for this book, which he recognizes as a huge huge departure for his style, and then actually sent it to a publisher under a pen name to make sure that they didn't uh, assume anything about his style, if that makes sense. Sure, yeah. Well, I actually had this conversation with Suzanne. I'm sorry I keep derailing you. I feel like I keep derailing you. But I did not know that J.K. Rowling's first post-Harry Potter book, she wrote under another name. That got wrote blown it. up real quick, though. I know. I know. It totally did. But I did not. Like, I, I just didn't. I hadn't paid any attention because the last three the last three Harry Potter books didn't do anything for me. So I wasn't really looking for her next thing. thing. But she didn't want it to go to the publisher and to the you know that first wave of renew- reviewers with her name on it and all the attendant you know the the assumptions that that would go with that yes definitely and that that's... And so this is probably the a version of the same thing except i assume that justin cronin was not the you know household name that jk rowling is no and his books had sold okay for literary fiction but they and were well regarded but he was not you know he was not writing books that were going to be made into movies right after they were published, which he is doing right now. So, sure, there you go. So let's we can dive into the passage at this point because it's a big book and we're going to run out of time sooner or later. <laughs> uh, I don't... So give me the basic like what span of time does this book cover? Like, is everybody vampires already at the start of the book and then it walks back, or does it, it... go chronologically? Oh, or God, what is it's it, all it over the place. <laughs> uh, it starts talking about. This character, Amy, who it refers to with a bunch of kind of epithets, like uh, epigrams, epigraphs. Oh, God, what's that word? From... I think epithets is the one that you want. Is that the one? The that word you... from what? It's what, like, gray-eyed goddess from the Odyssey. Yeah, that's no, that's it? an epithet. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, they refer to this character, Amy, as the girl from nowhere, the girl who walked in, the girl who lived a thousand years. And so already you know that she is somehow... If you've heard that this book has anything to do with vampires, your interest is piqued. <laughs> okay. Uh, and it kind of introduces her in a very general sense, kind of laying out that whatever happens in this book, she's going to make it, right? And so then the book spends about 200 pages of its 766 uh, setting up this near-future story where the government is trying to launch what they call Project Noah, of the Ark. Do you get the reference? <laughs> no, I got it. Okay, good. So they're trying to save humanity from something? Yeah. Basically? So the the setup is um it they go down to Latin to like South America, not Latin America, South America, um specifically. And a bunch of people who have uh cancer or other terminal diseases go on this trip into the jungle because they've found this virus that may or may not have restorative properties right okay and it reactivates what is called the thymus gland which is a real thing in your body that is kind of near your sternum it's 
just under your sternum. Um, yeah, feel it, feel it, think about it. Feel, it. feel my glands. Yeah, feel, feel your thymus <laughs> gland. It has to do with your T cells. Um, I'm not a doctor, so I can't really talk about what it does. Uh, but I know that it is most active uh, in the like development of a person, like before pre-adolescence, if not okay. earlier than that. So okay. by the time you hit a point in your life where you have a terminal disease, usually later in your life, uh, it's inactive. And this virus, you know, kicks it into overdrive. And people who had gone through chemo, like, grow full heads of hair and and get super strong and stuff. But then they end up dying, like, after 80 days. Uh, one or two people seem to have made it back. And the government has launched this secret program in the mountains of Colorado to incubate it in people, hopefully to create some sort of, you know, super cure for everything. Can't imagine I that bet, that's going to go wrong. Yeah, I bet. Okay, it's a virus, which, which, yeah, and it kills people. Uh-huh. But we're hoping to be able to harness it. So I wonder if this attempt to make nature do our bidding is going to end poorly. <laughs> I can't imagine. It might. <laughs> Uh, so then what happens is there's this guy named Wolgast, who is a federal agent, and he's the main character of the first third of the book. Is he also a werewolf? I no. What's that name? <laughs> it's a pretty good name, though. Yeah. <laughs> His first name is Brad, which seems like such a waste. <laughs> Um, but he like, is... Imagine if Thorin Oakenshield's first name had been Matt, like Matt Oakenshield. My I'm name stop is, interrupting you. I'm my gonna, name is I'm Steve gonna... the Impaler. I'm a vampire. <laughs> I'm a vampire. Um, so Wolgast's job is he's hired by the FBI to round up people, specific people, uh, to be test subjects in this program. Who do you think they that the government would round up to do this? They round up 12 people to do this. I bet they're people that society has thrown away. They're all that would be people, my guess. Yeah, they're all people like facing death row. <laughs> okay. So they're, some of them, at least one of them, is kind of innocent. Uh, he, he, is, he did not commit that crime. I don't know if he committed other crimes. I don't remember. Um, so they round up those dudes and give them this virus, and it transforms them, and they... Uh, live in this underground bunker and are cared for by these technicians, many of whom are like neutered pedophiles, which is like a weird, like other set of castoffs. I guess Excuse that's the one pun, way. To, I suppose. I guess, I guess that's one way to nip it in the bud, right? Yeah, there's like, and they, when that happens to them, they're also kind of given these other drugs to kind of mitigate the negative effects of that process. I don't know that they're, like, physically castrated, but they're, um, you know, diminished as, like, people. So that they're not threats or anything. Mm -hmm. So basically you have this huge facility in the middle of Colorado where a bunch of people who have nothing else going for them in their lives are working for the shadow government to raise vampires. Um, Also known as Denver, am I right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I swear we'll get through this book today. <laughs> I promise. Uh, so then the the last thing that they need to do to make this virus a success 
is they need to incubate it in a child um, because they they have a feeling that none of the none of the men who have received the virus have taken like well to it. They've all survived, but they've become kind of monsters. They've become okay. Uh, these, for lack of a better word, vampire. They don't really use the word vampire in the book, and that's kind of on purpose. But, um, so Wolgast's last job is he has to find this girl, Amy, who is introduced in the beginning of the book, and she comes from a troubled family where her mother ran away, and uh, with her, and they live in a motel, and she is a prostitute, and it's you know, uh kind of all messed up and then she gets abandoned at this convent and then Wolgast comes and claims her and he didn't know that he was supposed to pick up a girl and so that causes all sorts of other problems it's a really gripping like 200 pages and then everything dies like everything goes bad because guess what Andrew they're not just vampires they're psychic vampires oh, yes so slowly but surely the the vampires have been like infecting the minds of the dudes working at the facility and the one gray who's the his name is gray he's the the main character who's caring for this vampire named babcock um babcock convinces him to like unleash him and then the whole facility you know goes up in smoke okay um <clears throat> wolgast and amy escape to the mountains and then nukes start going off as the American government starts trying to quarantine this thing. And then, oh, wait, the book jumps ahead 90 years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then you find yourself in the middle of this colony that is in that is a f- part of the former Republic of California, which promptly seceded after all this stuff went down. Sure. Uh and it's like a whole new group of people. You don't even you've never met any of them before. Um, the main character is Peter, uh, Peter Jackson. He is what they call first family, and a uh, prominent film director. Well, it's spelled with an X, so you know okay. it's not the same guy. All right, sure. It's ninety two years later, Andrew. Unless he was Are a vampire, sure he wouldn't be alive. He was not trying to secure a director for the film series, <laughs> like preemptively. <laughs> That's possible. Uh, so it's 92 years after everything and they have some power, uh, but not a lot. How do you think they have their, their power works, Andrew? I don't know. Like the sun? They don't have solar panels. They have. Is it hydroelectric? It's wind power. Wind power. Thanks, Obama. They have wind power. (laughs) But what do you think, uh, they don't have like new equipment, right? They're just, they've been there for almost 10 decades. What do you think's? going wrong what do you think is gonna is gonna happen now are we still talking about their power or are we just we're talking, talking about, about their power what's gonna Cause happen because every night they turn on all these giant floodlights around their kind of walled colony mm-hmm. and that keeps the virals away that's what we're calling them for the rest sure of the book. but i bet they are gradually using a little bit more power than they are making yep the batteries are dying gonna run out yep yeah. the batteries are eroding and only a couple people know that <clears throat> But they have no idea what's uh, what's going on in the outside world, so they don't even know if there will be help for them if things go bad. Uh, and then, lo and behold, Amy shows up in the colony um, after Peter runs into her somewhere, and then they go on a quest to uh, t- 
take her to Colorado, back to Colorado, because she has a radio transmitter in her neck. And they decoded the coordinates on it, and it says it's the it's the address for the facility in Colorado. So is she like a hundred years old now? Or? She is like a preteen. Okay. Um, she's a tween, if you will. Yeah, she's six at the start of the book, and I think she's frozen-ish around like ten or eleven. Um, the implication being that she won't live forever, forever, but she will like aging has slowed to a crawl on her. Sure. Okay. Um, and she can kind of sort of communicate. She can't talk for the first like half of the book because she's apparently hasn't seen a human in for like a real person in forever. So she kind of forgot how, um, or just doesn't, I don't know. And then, uh, she can kind of talk to the, to the virals and she can ward them off sometimes. Like that becomes like a big thing that'll happen in some of the climactic moments where she can talk to them psychically. Uh, and then there's, you know, there's huge set piece moments. I don't know. I feel like I could just t- like try to summarize a 700 page book or we could dive into more nitty gritty stuff. I don't know where to start. Well, so, okay. I know a couple things about this book. And one of the things I know about it is that it's the first book in a planned trilogy. Yes. <clears throat> so I assume that, you know, while the story is probably self-contained to some extent that it doesn't really end you know like like the story the story isn't over when this book is over it i would give the ending uh i'd put it on par with a new hope ish in terms that it has a pretty distinct conclusion so evil is temporarily vanquished but yes still out there there is a distinct evil that is vanquished in this book um so the thing that happens is the original 12 convicts that got turned into vampires, they are almost like queens of beehives, for lack of a better word. Okay. So they can kind of, they exert will over all of the other uh, virals in an area. And so the one that they deal with in this book is the one of the original ones called Babcock, who's one of the strongest ones. And he, like, infects your mind with this dream of what, like, when he was young and he killed his mother because she was terrible to him. And once you, uh, in in the dream, once you kill the woman, then you're kind of like, you've been broken, basically. Does that make sense? And so you become a vampire? Not quite, or... but then you kind of, you're under his will. Like, you start having more... He can kind of Stephen King-like manipulate your mind and you do terrible things. Like, there's this whole chapter in the middle of the book... Excuse me. Where it's called the uh, the Night of... Oh, I wrote it down. The Night of Blades and Stars. And uh, there's, like, a huge invasion on the colony that's led by... Virals controlled by Babcock. And m- while that's happening... There's a thing that reminded me of Stephen King's Needful Things where a bunch of people just start doing terrible things to other people. Like all of their kind of some of their petty issues with each other or some of them similar issues are not so petty uh, kind of get magnified and they kind of lose control of themselves and, and kill other people because they're not sure why. Um, so that causes chaos to the whole thing. Okay. But yeah, they they vanquish a pretty major foe while kind of uh tossing in some some things about what will 
be problems moving forward. They end up discovering a branch of the army at one point. Uh, which which state other than California do you think seceded when this all went down, Andrew? Texas. Yup, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> they find this army outpost, and the general, General Greer, he's like, he's like, this soil. Once you cross this line, you're in Texas. <laughs> People great. do that when you try to enter Texas now. I don't know why this needs to be set in well, an apocalyptic future. It's funny because it's not. It, it's it's like a Texas embassy in the middle of the woods, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, but yeah. Now, do the vampires mess with Texas? They do mess with Texas. Man, that's yeah, not a recommended course of action. Uh, so earlier when you when you were talking about. You know, where does the book start and how does it deal with its chronology? Because it does jump ahead. It is sprinkled with uh, a couple chapters from this character, Sarah Fisher. And her brother, Michael, is the one at the colony who's in charge of keeping all the lights on and making that work. And Sarah's a doctor and she joins the party, for lack of a better word, on their adventure. Because um, she has a had a kind of a thing for main character peter but he's in love with another girl etc etc um and she has this journal that she starts keeping and a couple parts in the book kind of when it needs to go into montage mode for lack of a better word (laughs) uh it'll go to like the new south wales conference on the north american quarantine incident 1003 after it says like av which is their like after virus kind of calendar thing right okay um so there's the implication that a thousand years from the events of this book some sort of society exists at least in australia (laughs) um (laughs) of all places and that they're going back over the primary documents like the beginning of one of the chapters when they first introduced the colony there's like a tiny little map of the colony and all that stuff Um, Yeah, so I was going to ask what you found interesting stylistically about the book, because it sounds like it could be kind of a pulpy, kind of the stand-ish kind of book where it's like fun to read, but maybe not like super challenging. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily, it's not thematically challenging, I wouldn't say. It is very plot driven. Um, The world building is really good. I want to come back to that in just a second, because I have more examples for that um but what cronin's able to do is he's he gives himself time in this kind of giant of a book to examine smaller characters just as thoroughly as characters that you'll spend the whole book with okay um the last man to become one of the 12 vampires before amy is uh collected is this man named Carter. And there's like a whole series of chapters talking about uh, his story when Walgast picks him up. And you get this whole chapter from his perspective where he was he was homeless from a young age and this uh, suburban mother kind of saw him on the street and first wanted to offer him money and then could tell that he that wouldn't even have been enough for him. So she offered him a job and she kind of gets him a job uh and she's white and he's black, so that's part of the thing, part of the issue there. And she offers him, gets him work with all of her friends and all of her neighbors. 
And then there's like an incident where she is bringing him like this, you know, some tea while he's cleaning her pool or something. And it leads to them falling into the pool at the same time. And, oh, no, she, he's he's talking to her daughter. That's what it is. And then she, like, thinks he's doing something wrong. And they fall into the pool together. And she's trying to drown him. And she ends up drowning in the process. And so he gets convicted of murder because no one's going to believe his side of the story. He's also not very intelligent as part of the, as part of the point as well. Okay. Um, and like that's maybe there's 50 pages in the book devoted to him, but it's like a really vivid character portrait, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, Cronin's able to do a lot with a little. He juggles his many characters nicely and gives them uh, signif- like signifying traits that are easy to remember. There's another character in the f- in the future part of the book named Galen Strauss, who's kind of a... He is the husband of one of the main characters' uh, love interests, and they have a child, but it's clearly not his child, and he knows it, but like the marriage isn't good. And one of the big things that he has to deal with is that he's slowly going blind, but he doesn't want to tell anyone because he's, he's a relatively strong man otherwise and kind of serves on the watch for all the virals mm-hmm. and everything. And that kind of, that conflict is present even though you don't spend a lot of time with him. You know, Cronin's able to to create a lot of sympathy for him. And then there's kind of these little passages where it doesn't even feel like it's a vampire book for him to kind of wander into a really good turn of phrase or very human observation. Um, I'm going to read one where this woman, Mouse, uh, Mouse... Her name, Maustrami, doesn't sound right because that sounds like a meat. Mausumi, that's her name. <laughs> Mausumi. <laughs> Maustrami on, on Rosemary Parmesan, Oh, my God, please. it sounds delicious. Um, <laughs> she is pregnant with Theo's baby, even though she's married to Galen. And there's nope. this passage where... Sexy. What? Sexy. Yeah, I know. Um, and it's kind of the reality of having a child in this post-apocalyptic world. Excuse me. Oh, I had to burp. I'll edit that out. Um, and it says, A baby wasn't an idea as love was an idea. A baby was a fact. It was a being with a mind and a nature, and you could feel about it any way you liked, but a baby wouldn't care. Just by existing, it demanded that you believe in a future. The future it would crawl in, walk in, live in. A baby was a piece of time. It was a promise you made that the world made back to you. A baby was the oldest deal there was to go on living. And that's that kind of story is present in a lot of apocalyptic novels, I think. You know, that's a big mm-hmm. thing in the road of like, here is a living being that represents the future. I must keep it alive. Well, and then like once you get into apocalyptic futures, babies become more important. Oh, yeah. They stop becoming kind of a choice that you make or something that you... I don't know, something that, that makes a big difference to your life but doesn't make a big difference on a global scale. And yes. then all of a sudden in apocalyptic fiction, it is a big deal on a global scale. Well, yeah, and then it becomes kind of a litmus test for people's characters in terms of how much hope they have, right? Because the, the... Yeah, ba- people are like, oh, I don't want to have a baby in this messed up world. <laughs> <laughs> what? 
was this I'm just gonna have a baby and it's gonna get at by a vampire. <laughs> would you have a baby in the apocalypse? I don't know. How cool would it be? <laughs> well, I don't know if it would get if it would know how to drive a car. That's I would have cool. a baby that could drive a car. I would need like a a buff though. Like I would definitely need to have some control over this baby's character sheet. <laughs> Plus seven to car driving. Yeah, yeah. So I, it's it's actually kind of funny that you that you bring up like a role playing game or anything because there was a a quote from a New York Times review where what did he say? Um, he said. The world of the passage is as zealously detailed as that of a video game. <laughs> Which is like, I can't tell from the review in context if that's a bad thing or a good thing, but it's certainly the case. It means, I mean, it. if they're not making a quality judgment, they're at least saying something about the earnestness of the storytelling, I guess. That's, you know, that you've probably hit it dead on the nose that there is not a lot of irony in the book. Sure. <laughs> One of the, the, I guess it's a wink and a nod, but it's really blatant. I don't know. Is like later in the book they end up watching the movie Dracula. <laughs> okay. And some of the characters have never seen a like a motion picture before, and it kind of blows their minds. A talkie, a talkie, for, or you know, or I don't think I don't know know that they were watching a talkie. I'm not sure. No, they were. <laughs> okay. They were. They were. Um, but. It's, I don't know, it's something, it allows them to ruminate on whether or not this, like, plague uh, that ruined their world is part of human nature or not, in that, like, societies, even before this happened, had an analog for it. That's kind of the approach that it's taking there. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it always seems like there's, for ancient societies especially, I guess, there's always some big, like, world shifting apocalyptic event that humanity must then step back and then rebuild from yeah and it there's there's all sorts of kind of unironic but i don't know if it's quite satire like there's a section where they go into uh, a casino in vegas because they're trying to get to colorado and they think it's like a church because <laughs> there's like an altar with a piano on it and there's all sorts of people sitting in like neat rows at tables and stuff it's just and it, it kind of feels like it's satirizing our current world and our values and there's some less than comfortable uh references to the gulf of mexico being a giant oil slick um so i don't know it is okay. it's definitely unironic um but one of the things that made me think think of it as a like it's a pretty remarkable feat of world building for a book that is remarkably plot driven. Um, and part of that comes through with just the sheer amount of lingo that is in the book. I don't know if you've, cause I think the last book that you read that probably had anything was like Dune. Like you world know? war Z had a lot of, mm. had a lot of lingo where people referred to the zombies and things with specific names that, sounded like they you know just, they just sounded like they fit in with regular speech because people had come up with all these like colloquialisms and shorthands and everything yeah so in this book the vampires are referred to as a number of things first and foremost uh they're referred to as virals obviously um because the virus because the virus 
They're referred to as jumpers. Um, they often will attack from the trees and, you know, there's like the walls that defend the first colony are uh, like, I don't even know how tall they are. They're probably at least two or three stories. Um, and the virals can still get over them if they're not beset by the lights. Mm-hmm. They're called smokes, which I think has to do with them like dying in daylight, but I'm not sure. Uh, and then the the guys from Texas call them dracs. Which I think is great. <laughs> I was going to ask, like, why do people refer to these things as vampires when they don't sound like they have all that much to do with vampires? But oh, well, it they... sounds like people in the in the world come up with it. I guess I don't know. They they do exhibit some of the like classic fictional symptoms of being vampires. They also will go right for your neck and drink, and they do have a like blood hunger. Uh, but does that just kill people or does that then infect them and then they become vampires one in ten they quote take up the colonists call it taking up which is turning into a viral okay um and part of that there's this whole section in the beginning of the book where um the janitors are or the technicians are feeding the 12 these rabbits and they leave they don't eat one out of every 10 of them and they're mm-hmm. like they're wondering why that is, and that's the that's the virus kind of finding a way to propagate itself. Um, the thing that starts happening in this book is that there aren't enough people to feed all of the uh, virals, and so at least the one major viral that we meet, Babcock, has told his many. He calls them the many, which is another kind of cool term, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, that they need to not kill everyone and they need to group them together. And so like halfway through the book, they get taken to this place called the Haven where all these people are living completely free from attacks. But every new moon, they have to sacrifice two people to Babcock (laughs) or else they all die, (laughs) which is pretty messed up. Mm. Um, So other, other cool terms that are in the book, they they have their own like fake cuss word, which they just say flyers. Of course they do. Um, I think that has to do with the with the vampires, but they also say regular cuss words. But they say flyers a lot. It's <laughs> pretty cool. They call people who uh, were dead before, like just humans, like left in their cars. They call them slims. Like if like your skeleton, like they just found you. Yeah, no, I get it. No, okay. it's like you got jerkified by the sun so it's like you're a slim jim yeah that's exactly what they mean you're slim <laughs> uh they call their pants gaps <laughs> but it's it's a lowercase it's a lowercase g <laughs> why do they do that probably because of the gap probably <laughs> what why don't they call them old navies or something they don't, like they, what? <laughs> i don't know that's just what cronin picked it's kind of fun um, all right and then the other, like the the phrase they use a lot is they use a phrase called uh, say all eyes, which is their, you know, you're going out there, and be careful, like they could be anywhere. All eyes, like, all eyes, full hearts, can't lose, can't lose. <laughs> <laughs> like if you were, if you and I were living in the colony, and you said you had to go out beyond the wall for something, I would be like Andrew, all eyes. And I'd be like, thanks, Craig. Mm-hmm. Uh. They good. Uh, they 
what is there's another one. Oh, they also they all a bunch of them have crossbows in the colony and they call them crosses, which I'm sure is like kind of cheeky like vampire stuff. Okay. Um and then and then they kind of go into they go into epithets for things a lot. Like they refer to Amy a lot as the girl from nowhere or the girl who walked in. They call people who just kind of wander up to the colony walkers because they clearly came from somewhere. Um, talk, about, talk about the many. Oh, one of the characters' name is Caleb, and he uh, like has a pair of sneakers that he scavenged from this mall, and they're way too big for him, but he really likes them, so they call him High Top, which I think is great. <laughs> <laughs> great. That's like the name of a kid from a basketball movie, it's, though. Well, and the, and it's great because he's the he's the one who is like the jokester, like. With it, whenever anybody's like thinking about him when he's not in in a scene, they're like they're like, oh, remember that, remember that time Caleb said something funny? Like it's it's pretty great. Um, I don't know what else. I think that's most of the the terminology that I want to talk about. I think which, that's all right. I did want to share one. I I read a little bit about the book before we start talking about I would but hope. it, but I I wanted to share one review that I thought was interesting. And I you've read Stephen King like a fair amount of him, right? I've read, yeah. I I feel like I, I haven't read all the from, hits, but I've read a bunch of books. Yeah, yeah. I'm I, I think I remember from our show about the stand that you said your mom had had a bunch of Stephen King, and so you read some of it. That's true. Yes. Okay. So Booklist said of the passage that um, they said it was so similar to the stand that it required some fact checking to ascertain it was not written under a new King pseudonym. Oh no. <laughs> I mean, so, I guess. Like, do you think it's just it's just it's a long? I don't even want to say thriller, but like long genre fiction in the style of Stephen King, or what? Yes, I I think Stephen King has praised the book in a number of interviews, most notably on Oprah, I think. Um, which I think it was helped this book kind of explode, and I am sure that Cronin has read his fair share of Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the Stephen Kingiest things about this book is the kind of psychic abilities of the vampires, it, which is really fascinating because it doesn't, it, it doesn't, ex- the rules are really fuzzy, right? Like any good bit of science fiction that is also super frustrating. Sometimes the rules don't quite make sense like yeah i'm sure they have a bunch of context sensitive rules that only come up when the plot needs them to come up yeah well there's one that's like the they always they always return home and that they what's actually really smart the way he does it is they layer in that like colonists who get taken up by the virals will come back like a week later like if you if i lost you in the colony i would stand the watch for the next week to, so that I could be the one to put you down if you came back. Is there a specific way you need to kill these vampires? Yeah, you need you to just... hit them in the sweet spot. You need to stab them right under the breastbone where the thymus gland is. Oh, right is. in the gland. Is right okay. right was, in their I gland. Did, right when you said sweet spot, I didn't know. Like... No, they say sweet spot in the book all the time. <laughs> um, and I'm, you could also like blow them up, I guess, but you have to get them in the sweet spot. You gotta get, you gotta get that gland. Yeah. Um, and so they talk about this, they always come home thing. And then that slowly morphs over the course of the book to being a huge plot point because Babcock is running his giant 
vampire operation out of his hometown, like in the same area. And there's like something animalistic about the virals uh, returning to where they're from. Mm-hmm. So uh, it looks like in the sequel that the survivors of the first book are going to go hunting for the other 12. And they have like files from the before time that tell them that <laughs> I think they call it the time before. I'm only being All a right. little cheeky. <laughs> uh, and they, uh, so they're going to go hunting to these like hometowns to find it. But it's never really, ex- the big thing is that they don't really explain why Amy has any of her abilities. They obviously she's functionally immortal. And because of the virus, I guess she can commune with the vampires. But even before she's a vampire girl, she makes an entire, like, whole zoo full of animals go insane when the agents try to take her. So she's so she's, she's special. She's in special. The first place. She's got the shinning, um, for lack of better terms. So okay, there was one. There's been one sequel to this published called The Twelve, which I think is a you know obviously a reference to. The 12 people who were converted into vampires in the first place. And that came out in 2012. And mm-hmm. then the final volume is supposed to come out this year, as far as I know. Cool. Um, are you interested in reading more yeah. of those? I mean, whether you do it for the show or not. Heck yeah. This book is great. I'd, All right. I got bogged down in trying to relay it to you. but Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, taking individual elements by themselves, it sounds like I I couldn't tell how you had liked it, I guess. I I was up way later than I ever should have been reading this book. There was one I like books like that. There was one night where I woke up from an apocalypse dream and was like <laughs> up for two hours cause and I like took a break from this book for like a few days. You just needed I needed some time. <laughs> <laughs> you needed to get it out of your head. Um and it was like it was interesting because the first third of the book is this different it's not a different style overall but it's got a little less mysticism and and far less world building right because it's well because it's still near future in our universe right um and that stuff is fascinating and i was like i was kind of heartbroken when i thought that that part of the book was completely done with (laughs) and uh those characters were gone because and then when i was getting ready for the show i was like oh man and that and that guy was there and that guy was like that was fascinating um he also does a really good job of these kind of set piece moments like the thing i alluded to earlier the the night of blades and stars like there's much made in the book of the fact that these colonists they live all of their nights under intense floodlight so there's a part where a couple of them like sneak out at the power station and take a look at the stars and like it's this kind of magical dizzying moment and so that kind of lends it this air of of mystery and and magic which is unfortunately very tragic I'm rapping don't worry about it and um <laughs> and then later in the book there's this huge like locomotive chase like they're on a train and there's all these vampires chasing them um, and he doesn't lose track of the characters. I got a little lost in the section where they first encounter Babcock, just because I wasn't quite sure of the architecture of the space like that they were in when they were fighting. But I think mm-hmm. I think that might have just been me kind of rushing through some of the prose. Yeah, that can happen when you're trying to get 
to what's next yeah. you know and you like you just want to get to the next bit where the character you know is talking and you skip the spot where he like explains their physical relationship to each yeah. other yeah that's like that's the that's the cool thing about a good fight scene in a book is that you speed up while you're reading it yeah and it becomes hectic and you miss stuff i i just think i think that's that's cool how a good how a good fight scene evokes that and feeling of a fight i guess yeah and it's it, he does a really good job throughout the book of kind of giving you enough information to really feel invested keeping the characters distinct and giving them giving almost all of them their due uh there was like your characters that i never thought were going to get a chapter that got short chapters and um this is really well done, and I definitely would will will read the next books. I'm not quite sure how it's gonna go if I'm gonna like it or not, um, but I'm into it. I'm into his vampires. I mean, even though right. they're not really vampires, I understand they're viral people who are monsters. <laughs> um, but, but it's always good when someone can take any kind of classic monster and successfully iterate on it instead of coming up with frustrating iterations that everybody hates like twilight or whatever. Yeah. And it's, it's just enough rules that, uh, you, you don't lose track of, of what is and isn't going to happen, but he doesn't bang you over the head of them. At least I think maybe that New York times reviewer thought there were too many rules (laughs) and it was like a video (laughs) game. I'm not sure. Cool. But yeah, that's the passage. It's a big book, but you should read it. It's not it's not hard to read. <laughs> if you have any books that you don't think are hard to read, I don't know. You should email us about them at uh, overduepod at gmail.com. You can also contact us on our Twitter feed. Um, that's at twitter.com slash overduepod. And then our Facebook page is at facebook.com slash overduepod. And up on all those things we put the um the most recent shows and you know the occasional article and some other little tidbits and quotes and things so keep an eye on all those spaces and uh yeah you'll you'll have a great time <laughs> i can't tell if you're threatening our listeners or not you'll have a great time well and if, and if anybody out there has read the passage and, and i skipped over your favorite part please write in to any of those uh outlets so that we can talk about it on the next episode cause... you should send us your favorite passages oh shut up <laughs> <laughs> we have a website it's overduepodcast.com we have an itunes page that you can click on there where you can rate and review us we'd greatly appreciate that uh you can also subscribe through itunes or through your preferred rss reader of choice um getting a little redundant there uh, we also it's have back episodes words. of the show that you can listen to uh, download or just pop open in your web browser, you know, like you do. And we have Amazon links for the books that we've been reading. So you can support the show by uh, clicking on those links for a book that you're interested in or for an upcoming book if we've given it you enough lead time. Uh, and I think that's everything. Yeah, speaking of lead time, I don't know what I'm going to read next <laughs> week. So keep an eye on OverduePodcast.com and that should go up there like today or Tuesday or something so yeah great <laughs> i'll figure something out um in the meantime everybody try to be happy all eyes <laughs>